Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered round the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in a particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Andy. My fact is that the prototype personal cassette player was a block of wood which the inventor carried around in his pocket to make sure it would fit. <laughs> that, that was that was it. He just wanted something. He wanted to make sure that it would be the right size, mm. and so he did it the simplest way possible. Yeah. So when you say prototype, this he didn't think it was making any noise or anything. <laughs> okay. I remember when I was in the school orchestra in primary school, I was on the wooden block. So you know that is a really it's an ah, instrument, yeah. isn't it? It is an instrument. Yeah, it's true. That was the very early prototype, the idea. That was and the only was songs on the you could stick. play, the wooden block parts of um, <laughs> children's songs. Yeah, it was a really early prototype, and then he worked on it a lot before it became the Walkman. Um, <laughs> he was called Lou Ottens, this guy, and uh, he passed away a couple of weeks ago, aged 94. And uh, in his working life, he worked at Philips, the electronics firm, and he was the head of research and development. So uh, in the 1950s, he started working on an alternative for the, you know, the huge tape recorders that you had at the time. And um, he he had this block made in the 60s to show him how big the first compact cassette should be. So it was convenient. Uh, and the really nice thing is we don't have it anymore. It does. This prototype has been lost in the midst of time because he used it to prop up his jack while he was replacing a flat tire in his car. And he just left it by the road at the end by mistake. Oh, so it wow. should be in a museum. It was, it was just a bit of wood. I mean, you're actually <laughs> it should like... be in a museum. It belongs. <laughs> it was yeah. history. I agree. You know, we know where he broke down because if you're driving along the road, keep an eye open for a block of wood the same size as a Walkman because it could be worth exactly. billions. Exactly. I think he was Dutch. So look around, Dutch listeners. <laughs> Yes, that's very cool. He was madly in love with um, electronics right from the beginning, wasn't he? When he was a kid, he used to build radios. And as a teen, he built radios during the war. That meant that they could sort of listen in to illegal channels. Him and his parents could listen to radio that shouldn't have been heard. And he built this weird directional antenna on top of one um, that he called the German filter. And the idea was it would jam any of the Nazis who were trying to work out who was getting illegal radio I think it was so cool. it was a thing that would stop the jammers, right? It was as in the Nazis would put jammers out there to try and stop you from listening to yeah. certain radio stations, and his thing stopped the jammers rather than jamming other things, right? That's it was so a jam, cool. exactly. a jam jammer, a jam yeah. jammer, wow, <laughs> jam avoider. Yeah. So he could listen to his jam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, do you know what the radio station was called? It was called Radio Orange or Orange. And oranges, what do you make out of them? Marmalade. Marmalade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, kind of it's the literally the only fruit that if you turn it into a jam-like substance, it's not called jam. It, <laughs> Andy, I think it falls under the jam umbrella. The jam I, umbrella. I think it's a subcategory of jam. A but jam in, later, in later life, obviously, the personal cassettes he helped invent, what can you listen to on them? Your jams. That's what that's, I just that's, said. That's, I literally yeah, just made that James joke. James made that joke. Yeah. I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm so James sorry, made the Chris. joke, and while you were not listening to it, you were busy coming up with your whole marmalade thing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why that was in there at all. I'm mortified. The interesting thing about this block is he came up with the size and then had to fit everything inside it. This is kind of an interesting way of doing it, right? You would think you would... 
get everything that you need. So all your speakers and all your bits and where the batteries go and stuff, and yeah. then try and make it smaller. But he thought this is the side it needs to be. And in that size, we have to fit the cassette. We have to fit a loudspeaker. We have to fit batteries. We have to fit all the electronics and we have to fit a few connectors. And then basically that was the puzzle that he had to solve at Philips to try and get all these amazing things into this tiny little block. That's very interesting. So, um, so Lou Ottens, he mm. actually didn't think much of the cassettes compared to CDs. He thought that CDs were the absolute best quality of anything you could get. He even thought CDs were better than vinyl. Later on in life, he kind of reneged on the whole, aren't cassettes amazing? And that's true. I mean, cassettes, yeah. do not they do compress their audio quite a lot, don't they? He helped to invent the CD. Yeah, he wasn't just being selfless when he was saying, <laughs> the CD is so much better than my invention. It was also his, wasn't it? It was partly um, his, wasn't it? He, okay. th- he must have been absolutely bloody loaded. Well, I don't know what kind of a stake he had, but 100 billion tapes were sold. And then as soon as he invented the CD, 200 billion CDs were sold. If he got 1p for everything, he would be the richest man in the... I don't know about numbers and stuff, but it feels like he would be the richest person in the world. He's a math graduate. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, when you say how much money Elon Musk has got, it's just the numbers just become crazy, don't they? That's true. Must be there or thereabouts. I think he must have not made too much from it, right? Otherwise, the obituary would have said, richest (laughs) man ever dies. That that wasn't really a sentence that featured in it. That's right. Um, Do you know what the event was that the cassette player was launched at? It was the International Funkausstellung. Which is, cool. yeah, and it sounds like it's the International Funk uh, Exhibition, but it just means wireless in German. It's the International Wireless Exhibition. But it still happens to this day. Every year they invent new stuff and uh, release it. Cool, yeah. I mean, people still buy cassettes, don't they? Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. I think last year they sold more than they have since the 80s or 90s, didn't they? There was one by Five Seconds of Summer, who's like an Australian boy band, and they sold tens and tens of thousands of them because uh, yeah. they released yeah. a lot. It was, um, I think it was Lady Gaga's last album was the biggest selling cassette for a long time um, in the tens of thousands. But there was this really odd thing where for quite a long time in the 2000s, they weren't selling anything. So there's a fact that makes the round on the internet, which is that NSYNC was the top selling single for a cassette in 2010. And they'd sold uh, 13 copies in 2010. (laughs) And in 11, they got the chart topper again with the same album by selling 11 copies in 2011 so i suddenly thought i know the last time i bought a cassette the last time i bought a cassette was in 2012 and it was our theme tune wasps so i looked into it because in 2012 the top selling cassette was borders by the band feeder and they sold 480 cassettes out of all the cassettes that the uk registered which was 604 cassettes sold but Emperor Yes, the band who does our theme tune, Mm. they sold 50 cassettes, definitely, (gasps) because they sold out, which must mean our theme tune was one of the top five best-selling cassettes (laughs) of 2012. Huge. We've got to get that on the press blurbs. (laughs) (laughs) It was before we existed, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. 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 Two years. Yeah. It is mad how much it's gone up then, given that we were in the almost single figures. And I think in 2020, (laughs) 160,000 tapes were bought. And that was three times what it was in 2018. So something's happening. 
And I think <laughs> an industry person said it's actually um, slightly caught us off guard because we don't have enough of the magnetic tape. We weren't really expecting tapes to come back into fashion yeah. and um, started running out. In 2012... So this was the year of of the Emperor Yes release, uh, when it was still sort of like 400 copies being sold. Mm. That, is that how 2012 is going to go down in history now? <laughs> Just like the year of the dragon, the year of the dog, the year of the Emperor Yes release. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Fuji and IBM built a prototype cassette, which can hold more than, say, you know, the classic cassettes that we bought, where 30 minutes you could get onto it, 90 minutes was the top, and then I think there was 120 and 180 minutes. Those really were pushing the limits. Um, they've now built one which can store 185 terabytes on a single cassette tape. Wow. Single cassette tape. So I was trying to look into how many songs that could fit onto it. And some guys worked it out online. He says you could fit on this a single cassette tape 47.3 million songs mm. on a single That's too cassette. Many. Yeah, well, it is. No one needs that many songs. Surely we have more than that just on our Spotify or whatever. Or I don't know. Spotify, yeah. Lot. Spotify currently has 70 million songs. So this is more than half of what Spotify has. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wait, sorry, this is, a, this is a, t- a kind of a massive tape. No, it's, it's the size of a cassette tape. And what they've done is it's a, a process they've called sputter deposition, and it shrinks the magnetic particles on the tape. So it just drastically shrinks them down wow. so that more information can be fed on. Dan, why have they done that when we don't, none of us really care about tapes anymore? <laughs> I know, I don't know. I think they want it for storage, because in the same article they were talking about how Facebook has its whole backup on Blu-ray discs. This is back in 2012. And so I think they're just trying to find tiny spaces where they don't have to use these insanely large hard drives that are chewing up energy wow. um, to hold things. Yeah, so, so- it's like the just to show how obsolete it is, the um, word cassette tape was taken out of the concise Oxford English Dictionary. So the concise Oxford English Dictionary doesn't have every word. It has all the most useful ones. And cassette, <laughs> cassette tape was taken out of it in 2011. And that's no. one, one year before the year of Emperor Yes's cassette tape. <laughs> <laughs> that's outrageous. They had no idea. I think that, that's an oversight. That is bad, bad work. Yeah, that's, from I think Samuel there's Dodd. a lot of people listening to this. Not a lot of people, but some people listen to this podcast who've got literally no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want to hear a cassette tape anecdote? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh my God. Give us um, half of it. <laughs> all right. All right. Look, uh, there's a scientist called Barry Marshall, who I think we've mentioned before. Oh, yeah. He's um, the one oh, who wow. gave himself, um, what's it called? A, a stomach ulcer. stomach ulcer, yeah. Yeah, yeah he won so, the prize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he won the prize for suggesting that stomach ulcers were caused by bacteria and not by stress and diet. And this was a revolutionary thing. And he won. He and his colleague won the Nobel Prize in 2005. Anyway, this is a, what I found in an online comment thread. Um, beneath an article about cassettes, which was when Marshall and Robin Warren submitted a paper concluding that blah, 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 one of the reviewers of the paper sent back a cassette tape that was just 15 minutes of laughter. (laughs) Now, I wrote to Barry Marshall because I couldn't quite believe it because I thought 15 minutes is such a long time to be fake laughing to make a point. And he said it was fake news. He wrote back and said, no, this never happened. Oh, really? Oh. In contact with Barry Marshall. That's incredible. I wrote to him to ask him maybe the most pointless question ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobel Prize winner and said, is it true that someone laughed at you for 50 minutes on a cassette tape based on this one comment on an online thread? And he said, no. It was about a four word email he sent back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but then, like, because that would have been a pointless 15 minutes of um, laughter, but he has received a pointless email from you. So, in a way, it's yeah. kind of... he, he's wasted yeah. that time in the end. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I've got one more story about cassette tapes. Mm. So that it, okay, in the 1990s, a woman called Stella Weddell was on holiday in Spain. I think she might have just been a girl at the time. Anyway, she lost her mixtape. It had uh, some Shaggy on it, some Bob Marley, and a few Disney songs. Mm-hmm. So Good collection. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. yeah, proper proper mixtape stuff. Really eclectic. Um, anyway, in 2019, she was on holiday uh, in Stockholm. Uh, and she went to an exhibition by an artist called Mandy Barker, who had been documenting plastic pollution and had put a tape on display. She'd found a tape and had it professionally restored wow. and, you know, showed the track listing. And Stella Weddell saw the track listing and said, that's my mixtape, which I lost oh 30 God. years ago in Spain. And then she got fined for littering or what? <laughs> it doesn't relate. I hope so. She just put her hands up and said, it wasn't me. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. It's about baboons. My fact this week is that baboons can take 45 minutes debating which direction to go in the morning. Unlike Anna, who spends 45 <laughs> seconds debating whether to say a fact. I was, I was on the wrong page, and you can just snip that silence right out. Um, yes, baboons... <laughs> Baboons are very indecisive, it turns out. And so every day they wake up and they need to decide where to go to get food or water or shelter or fun. And they have this amazing process whereby they decide which way to go. So it's sort of democratic. And it was looked at properly by a behavioural ecologist called Meg Crowfoot recently. And she observed a number of things. So one quite funny thing is that eventually everyone ends up following a leader to go in the right direction. But there seems to be no rhyme or reason to which baboon they follow. It's not the most dominant. It's not the biggest. It's not the males. It's not the sexiest. The only thing that determines which one they follow is the style of walking. So (laughs) if you walk... It's a bit like, do you remember that Conservative Party conference where they all started doing an unbelievably stupid (laughs) stance? (laughs) <laughs> where they kind of yes. would, they would walk on stage and all stand with their legs like five yeah. feet apart. Legs akimbo. Yeah, yeah. It feels like. But that. That, but then they all followed Theresa May doing her dance instead. <laughs> Robot. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a different? Is it a different walk then every morning? It's basically if you walk with extreme confidence. So baboons that went off, but in a bit of a windy way, or walked a bit slowly, or did some pauses. They didn't get followed. If you walk very straight and at a very steady pace, you're more likely to be followed. That's really cool. They're, they are quite democratic in one way, but undemocratic in another way, which is basically the rank in the in the pack, which is not deciding on who goes in which direction. It just depends on who's in charge. But that's very much in the females depends on how strong your mother was. And in males, it depends on how much you can beat up the other baboons. And it's very much like, you know, if your mum was amazing, you're amazing. If you can beat up all the other boys, you're amazing. And everyone else just has to suck it up. Right. But they do, but that's the are they... decisions are not based on that. It's yeah. really weird. It's yeah. really peculiar. And Everything the... else is. Like you Sorry. say, they're so hierarchical. There was one quite endearing scene that Meg Crowfoot painted. One baboon that she observed obviously tried to lead the group. So they're all loitering around in the morning under a tree. One baboon started wandering away, uh, walked about 100 metres, looked back, no one's followed him. And oh. so he sort of like wanders around and like thrusts his chest out. And he's like, you know, why aren't you following me? And eventually he climbed up onto a tree stump and made it obviously trying to make himself more prominent. And he stood there for 10 minutes trying to encourage them to follow. 
and then gave up and returned to the group. Mm. Oh, wow. That rings, a, that rings a bell. <laughs> Trying to persuade people to make a decision um, on where to eat. Yeah. yeah. You think if I just start walking, they'll follow. They never do, they do they, Andy? No. Did you, Anna, did you say the thing about compromise? That when leading baboons go in opposite directions the degree counts. So if there is less than 90 degrees between the two leaders of the pack who are saying, let's go this way, if there's less than 90 degrees, they'll just find us a direction in the middle and go that way. But if they're going in opposite wow. directions, that then they like side not, with each other. Not a good plan. Yeah. It's like a terrible plan, yeah. Yeah, because, because what if there's something in the way? Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, or a hippo or something. Yeah, but you're no, that's, basically um, picking something that neither of the two main guys have picked. You're just choosing something quite arbitrary aren't you james i would have thought as a lib dem voter that uh, you'd love to arbitrarily pick something roughly in the middle that's fair <laughs> yeah and i don't understand if then uh, do, do they join the group i guess they do the two who've picked the directions or are they just now out on a limb i wonder and everyone else because it's about the whole group then picks the one in the middle don't they but the route in the middle yeah, yeah yeah i guess the two who were leading it lead it but i don't know yeah the two leading would yeah they join. say okay we've We've come to a yeah. yeah. I'm just We've seeing where my compromise. position is in in this entire group and in the group of all of our fans. Now that everyone knows I'm a lived envoy, I might have gone right down to the bottom of the group. <laughs> no <laughs> one's following you anywhere. I'm afraid of you. You're standing on a tree stump on your own. <laughs> but they are the democracy element is pretty fascinating. So as you said, if they if two baboons go in opposite directions, um, then sometimes they'll just be a stalemate. So exactly the same number of baboons will follow each one. And so the rest who are still left in the middle were like, well, it's equal. So we just have to do a revote. It's like the second stage of voting. So everyone wow. comes back to the middle oh, really? and then try again. And eventually, slightly more baboons will follow one than the other. And then they all go, okay, more voted for that one. Let's go with that. Very cool. Um, you know, baboons <laughs> have red bums. Yes. yes. Do you know why they have red bums? Huh. It's uh, not so that when you're walking, people can follow you. I don't yeah, think. that would be good. Be um, useful. Yeah. Are they always slapping each other's bottoms? That's just a bit mm, bruising. No, not really. <laughs> so they actually don't have red bottoms. Yeah, they, they just don't. have a big bruise, <laughs> yeah. all of them. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, um, so you would think, I would have thought, that whoever has the reddest bum might have the most sex. Yeah, like, it's the sex, sexy bums. You surely. would think so, right? Um, but they've done some studies. So it's a 2015, actually on my notes, it's a 2105 AD study, but I think it was in 2015. <laughs> and it was in the journal Animal Behaviour. Uh, and they looked at all the female baboons with the most swelling and they found that the redder rumps didn't have more offspring and didn't have more sex. And so they are like, well, why did they do that? And they reckoned that it's, simply kind of a byproduct of ovulation so when um a, a female is the most fertile various changes happen in her body but one of them is that her bum gets redder and there's actually not any particular reason it doesn't seem to help or hinder them in any other way it's just kind of a byproduct of that interesting Isn't that weird it's just mm. it's random it's like if yeah. women having periods we were being studied by aliens and they were like i guess men must find this period thing attractive and then yeah. it's like, no, it just happens. Just it's part of life. Just part of life. Yeah. Wow. I read That's that the re the way they do choose a mate is by how long it's been since the woman last had a baby, which ah, um, because apparently they're less fertile if they're nursing. Uh, so it's best that they're not nursing young. But I'm not sure how they, how do you have that conversation as a baboon? 
<laughs> Maybe it's obvious when you you know you go mm. back to their place and they've got a seventeen-year-old kid. Yeah, okay. you look at the quality. Yeah. The quality of the drawings on the fridge. Is how you do it? <laughs> it's very basic, and she's had a baby recently. Yeah. <laughs> so I really like this baboons and impalas. Uh, you know, the sort of antelope-like creatures. They make friends with each other because this is in Tanzania. There's a tree in Tanzania called the sausage tree, which I was immensely <laughs> pleased to find out exists. God, and they hang out under the sausage tree. Annoyingly, it's not real sausages, but what a tree that would be. It's just fruits which have these rough grey rinds on the outside. And they look like sausages. It just looks like it's festooned with sausages. But anyway, uh, the impalas are trying to eat their sausages under the tree. And the baboons are there looking out for predators. And the impalas are visibly more relaxed um, they spend half the time with their heads up and around looking for predators that they would do normally if they were, um, mm. you know, unaccompanied by their baboon friends. I was reading about how baboons um, get their food, uh, and I'm, this is probably a, a tip for anyone who's lost out in the wild as well, but they scavenge through elephant dung. So they, they come across a massive pile of dung, and they head in there because elephants eat a lot of nuts and they eat a lot of fruit, but they don't digest it all. So a lot of the stuff passes through their body completely undigested. Oh. So if you see a giant pile of elephant dung and you're starving, <laughs> stick a hand in and you might, like, <laughs> I like think dip style, gotta come be out with an apple. Quite far down the road of being starving before you get that far. Yeah. You? I, think I mean, I'd don't do it. If you're walking around Chester Zoo and you feel like a snack, <laughs> don't do it. I think that they, they're they going, fuck, we voted for the wrong person this morning when they <laughs> that pile of <laughs> Democracy doesn't always work. We know that. Oh, dear. Um, baboons like to pet, heavy pet each other quite a lot. It's in a quite oh. a sweet way. I, I read an article from 2003 in Nature, which I was surprised by the title of it because it is Nature, a very high respected journal. And the article was titled Risky Diddling Bonds Baboons. And... <laughs> It's about the closer friends oh. you are with someone as a baboon, the more risky your diddling is. So, <laughs> diddling, it, I love that phrase. It's so nice, isn't it? So um, they love to fondle each other. They'll pull on each other's penises reciprocally. Um, they uh, sort of, There are several forms of grasping of bums and genitals that they engage in, apparently. They sort of nibble each other. They, they mount each other when they meet. But the closer they are to that other baboon, the yeah. more the closer they'll get. And the idea is that you'll only sort of... How can you get closer than pulling each other's penises? <laughs> it feels like there's no closer you can get after that, is there? I guess it depends how hard you pull. You know, maybe it's a gentle tug for an acquaintance. Got but it. A real, you know, heave Got for it. a pal. And the idea is that um, <laughs> if it's not a close friend, then you maybe don't trust them. Well, the way they put it was... Um, for instance, if you're genital biting, which is something else they do, <laughs> yeah. if, if it's some if it's someone you don't know very well, an overenthusiastic bite can end a baboon's mating career. So well, I you can only imagine, so, yeah, yeah. You probably just mistook else. it for a sausage from that tree. <laughs> <laughs> um, funny. Here's another here's another penisy thing about baboons. Um, oh, yeah. There was a baboon. No, there wasn't a baboon called Babi, uh, because this was like an ancient. Egyptian kind of god. Um, I don't want to say that gods don't exist, but sure. this one is probably a story. So there was a baboon called Babi, uh, and it was kind of the the person who took you from the living world to the dead world uh, in ancient Egypt, according to some stories. 
And because um, baboons have such high libidos and having sex all the time and doing all this diddling, uh, he's usually portrayed with a massive erection. Uh, and sometimes when he would take the souls from the living world to the dead world, he would have to cross a river and he would use his penis as the mast of the ferry. Uh, <laughs> <so> he, <laughs> he would tie a sail to it and it would help him to get across the, the river sticks or whatever it was wow. in Egypt. Wow. That's more realistic than what I thought you were going to say, which is that he'd use it as a bridge for them to walk across. <laughs> yeah. That's... I thought you were going to say you had to take him by the penis so he was your guide into the spirit world and you just had to follow his knob, you know. But then he's yeah. walking backwards and so that, that would make him a terrible guide, wouldn't it? That's a really good point. Yeah. He knows the road, though. Tour guides do walk backwards. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> would be worth, you know in London when you see the tour guides and they've got a massive umbrella that they're holding up so everyone else can see them? If that was a baboon's penis, <laughs> yeah. the world would be very different. Yeah. I reckon they'd get more custom. That's an idea. Ain't Ancient Egyptian um, life with baboons seems... This, did you guys read this story? Which, again, I think it's one of those ones that sits across a lot of those fact sites on the internet. But supposedly, baboons used to be part of the police force in ancient Egypt. No. And, yeah, and there's hieroglyphics and examples on walls that show uh, baboons that have sort of been let off after a criminal who's trying to escape, taking them down. Um, and we do have examples of this. So there's classical works where they would go around with the baboon on a leash. And if the person was a thief escaping in a marketplace, let them off the leash and they would, they would, you know, bite their leg and hold the criminal down. Well, if they only bite your leg, then you've done okay, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing, but can't be. I mean, do you, would they use a sort of the um, attack dogs? We think. Yeah, like attack dogs. The the police say, go get that guy. And then the three baboons have a 45-minute chat about the best <laughs> route through the marketplace to pursue. I love it. Yeah. They're quite trainable. There are baboons that herd goats, apparently, and have done. Oh, yeah. Since the... It's so cool. This is like first record. It seems to be in Namibia specifically. But in the 1830s, then they were recorded of like that. You know, they'll they'll herd goats out and make sure goats don't sort of wander off track and stuff. At the end of the day, they'd herd them back into the compound. They'd raise an alarm if there's like a wolf on the horizon. They'd make a big shrieky noise. And in the 1960s, this was still happening. And there was this such sweet account of a baboon called Arla. Did you guys read about Arla? Oh, no. So this is in Namibia, and Arla's herding the goats of a farmer, and she's obsessed, according to this article, with reuniting parents with children. So sometimes the farmer will put the parent goats in one pen and the kids in another because he just shoved them all separately. And Arla would leap into the kid's pen because there'll be a kid bleating out for its mum, would leap in, pick it up, and jump over and return it <laughs> to its mother. To the extent that a farmer said it's actually quite annoying because when a goat has twins, you try to foster one out to a different mother. But Arla would keep jumping in, picking it up and returning it to its birth mum. Wow. This is so amazing. So we're not believing that they were police forces in ancient Egypt, but we are capable of believing that after Jimi Hendrix's recording career started, there were goat herds doing family reunions. That's right. I mean, the bit I heard about was all these baboons that are herding goats um, would often be seen riding the biggest of the goat back home as they were herding it, like a cowboy riding a horse. Yeah, there are there are photos of them riding, and we don't know if they chose the biggest, but there are certainly photos of them popping on the back. You would, wouldn't you, after a tough day's herding? Yeah, yeah. photos of dogs on, on surfboards, but I don't think that it's kind of a regular thing that they did. <laughs> this is the the farmer said that they that Arla would jump on top, on, pop on their backs. They're quite fun-loving. I think you would. Wow. 
I don't know. I think of all this story that you've just told, the Occam's razor is that one farmer is a massive liar. (laughs) That is the simplest explanation for that whole story, isn't it? I have faith in the baboons. Okay, it is time for fact number three. That is my fact. My fact this week is that Ella Fitzgerald's voice was so pitch perfect that musicians would tune their instruments to it. Wow. That's That's a good voice. Yeah, this was um, this appeared in an NPR article that I was reading about Ella Fitzgerald's general um, voice technique and the love that people have for her voice, including all the band members that used to work with her. And uh, they all talk about her voice in this really sort of otherworldly kind of way. There was one person in the band called Janice Siegel who said that they were doing a few four-part harmonies um, and then you know, Ella would scat a couple of choruses and then would turn to them and say, was that all right? And she said it was like God asking angels after he created the world, you know, what did you think? The Grand Canyon, could it use a little tweaking? Like they were just so in awe of this instrument that she had inside of her. Um, oh, wow. And she was I extraordinary. Ha- yeah, I hadn't realised with Ella Fitzgerald that the thing seems to be how perfect her voice was. There's a lot of... Um, I feel like sort of slight digs when people write about her, like she didn't have the emotional depth and pain of a lot of blues and jazz singers, but she could hit every note flawlessly, right? And her voice never, ever failed or cracked. Amazing. Yeah, I I sort of, I was interested in this fact because we had a really great conversation with Karen Gibson during our 20-hour marathon, who was the creator of the Kingdom Choir, who sang at Harry and Meghan's wedding. You should, everyone, go watch that chat on YouTube. It's really cool about gospel. But I suddenly realised I knew nothing about... Ella Fitzgerald and her story is pretty remarkable where she came from and how she became a big musician in the jazz era where segregation was still massive and where at the height of her career she was still having to come in through different doors to white people and and not allowed to perform in certain places and what's fascinating as well is that her first mega hit was a nursery rhyme that gave her her first number yeah, one. So a, weird. A, huh. And she she had a number one hit with it before you could have billboard number one hits and the way that you used to do that was sheet music so you would release the sheet music to your song and that was judged to be the most popular yeah. song also so that, i a... think it was that and jukebox plays wasn't it i think they used yes, to help those correct. billboard yeah yes God, yes how that's incredibly right. disappointing when you bought the sheet music went home and remembered that you did not have ella fitzgerald's voice <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah so much worse um, yes yeah, you had yeah. an she had an amazing start. So I think she got that big hit in about 1938. But she sort of started, her big break came in 1934 at a thing called Amateur Night at Harlem Apollo Theatre. And it was the first year that that was happening. And it still goes on today, wow. which is quite cool. And it's just amateurs go up and sing. And it was a bet. She went with two friends and they put their names in this hat. And you pick names out of a hat to choose who goes on stage. And Ella's name was pulled out of a hat And she was really into dancing then, not nearly as much into singing. And she'd planned to do some dancing on stage. And there were some women called the Edward Sisters who danced amazingly before her. And she lost confidence. She's very shy. And she got up on stage. And so she thought, okay, I'll sing instead. And I think um, she said at one point that it messed up first time. She couldn't really sing it properly or she freaked out. And the crowd started sort of jeering and booing. MC paused, gave her another go. She won first prize. Someone who was there, a dance called Norma Miller, said, she shut us up so quickly you could hear a rat piss on cotton. <laughs> Strong phrase. That's a great phrase. Oh my <laughs> yeah. <God. laughs> Worth reusing. 
Why didn't that catch on? Why uh, are we not using that in everyday language? That's great. Time to get it in circulation again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and she won her, won the prize. That was her kind of job before. Well, she was a she was only a girl at the time, wasn't she? But she she tap danced on the pavement busking. And that's mm. what, what gave her the idea to um to do the amateur night at the Harlem Theatre. Although apparently that was only one of her jobs. She also had a job doing errands for the mob, which I I don't know what kind of errands the mob needed doing. Stuff running down to the post. I think they have quite a lot of errands to do, don't they, the mob? (laughs) And she was also a lookout for a brothel, wasn't she? Uh, I think I read that she she would stand outside the brothel and if the police were coming, she'd be like, get your trousers back on, everyone, the police are coming. (laughs) Yeah. Or something. (laughs) But she said it in such a beautiful voice that everyone... Mm. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> one of Ella Fitzgerald's most famous um, recordings um, I'm sure you guys all read about this Was in Berlin, live in Berlin uh, Which she won the best female vocal performance And best vocal performance um, for a single and an album At the Grammy Awards uh, And it was mostly for this song Mac the Knife Which everyone will know And halfway through she at least pretends to Or actually forgets all the lyrics Right. And if you listen to it, it's amazing. She starts singing. The first verse, she sings fine. And then the second bit, she does a little bit. And then she goes, oh, what's the next chorus to this song now? This is the one now. I don't know. But it's a swinging <laughs> tune and it's a hit tune. So we tried to do Mac the Knife. And she's just like literally <laughs> nice. just like she just completely made up the lyrics. And then towards the end, she just does her normal scat singing where she's just like mm. boobops her way to the end. But it, I mean, it is an incredible, incredible recording. If anyone hasn't heard it, you've got to listen to it. But she won a Grammy oh. for that yeah. for that recording. Yeah, yeah. Did she? Wow. That is extraordinary. Well, if you but think about it, it, you've not just sung it, you've written a song on the fly as well, haven't you, in a way? I know. You've yeah. got a co-writer credit all of a sudden. Mac thought was like, hang on, mate. <laughs> what? The lyrics sound like they could do with some work. I mean, I appreciate that it sort of rhymes or whatever. Well done her on the spot. But Well, she rhymes now with now, so I'm not sure. It's, mm, yeah. Good point. Not perfect. There you go. That's what I'm saying. Um, I read her obituary in the Washington Post. Well, I read a couple of different obituaries, but I love this. This is not really a fact about uh, Ella Fitzgerald per se. It's more a fact about Washington Post obituaries in the 1990s. But <laughs> Okay. That's because that's what most of my research is. <laughs> I just found this amazing. So there's the whole obituary, obviously, and then at the end of it, there's this one paragraph which just says, to sample different aspects of Ella Fitzgerald's music, the Post offers three sound bites. They can be heard by calling Post Haste at 202-334-9000 and pressing the number listed after each selection. To hear a tisket a tasket, press 8151. And you just had wow. a kind of dial an obituary service, which I think is brilliant. Why don't we do Very that anymore? Cool. That is That's such amazing. a good idea. Yeah. A number of reasons why we don't do it anymore, but it is amazing. Yeah. Did you try calling the number? I didn't, no, because it was in America <laughs> and I thought I'd probably get charged loads. <laughs> Not worth it. <laughs> Has there ever been a TV show of obituaries? That feels like it would work, wouldn't There's it? There's a Radio 4 show, which so, is called, yeah. I can't remember what it's called. It's called They're Dead or something. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's called it last called? week. And it's a really great show because it's several different yeah. lives each week. I don't think it's a TV show. There should be. Feels this like was it your would life. Be brilliant. Yeah. Like so you would yeah. say you'd be celebrating the people's lives and then you would show clips of what they did and stuff. I think that'd be but I think this is your life. The key emotional thing in this is your life is that they get the famous person and then they bring out all the people from their life. Yeah, Whereas you just sad. have them, you'd have them there in a coffin and then all the famous people they knew in life just oh, you going out. They, they'll be crying because it's a week later. Just, Maybe you, it's, could do it, you could do it a while after. Yeah, like you? a year. It's been a year since this person died or something. Yeah, you've got the coffin still in the room. For <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay, no. sorry. Right, we're just dropping that. Okay. 
That was never Coffin part. Doesn't feel like a crucial format for you. It was never uh, part of my format, Andy. It's the centerpiece yeah. of the set. I don't know what you're talking about. It's the main <laughs> desk that the host is on. Maybe the maybe the big reveal is the person has died, so everyone comes out, and it's like you got to work out what connects you all. Why That's are you all really here? Something. Oh, who's not here? Who's not here? Yeah. That's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh, this has turned from heartwarming to macabre very quickly. Uh, Dear me. On Ella? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ella Fitzgerald, the thing about her that I've wondered about before, so I was glad to have it confirmed in this fact, is that she really doesn't look how you expect her to look um, based on the fact that she was the biggest star of her era. Uh, she And she never did. So she always was kind of thought frumpy. She was thought of as a bit too chubby. She didn't look glamorous at all. Even when she won that first prize in 1934, the prize was meant to be that the winner got to perform at the Apollo Theatre for the next week every day. Mm. And they didn't let her because she looked so scruffy. She was wow. homeless at the time. And she was wearing like men's work boots and like a really raggedy dress. And she actually was spotted, I think, oh. that night or at similar time by Chick Webb. And it was Chick Webb was the band leader whose band she joined, her first partner. But when he first saw her, he looked at her and said, you're not putting that on my stage. And his band said like she smelled like she hadn't bathed for a year and she was just so, so scruffy. That they thought we can't be can't be doing that, and, and then she sang, and they went. They decided they could put her on the stage, but yeah, she doesn't. She hasn't got the look, has she? Um, no, and that was was oh. the thing about uh, Marilyn Monroe. Um, I read that um, basically Marilyn Monroe said this woman has the most amazing voice. You need to put her on stage um, to to some owner, and he was like, "No, I'm not doing that." And she said, "Well, if you do, then I'll sit on the front row for the next." you know, two weeks or something, and you'll guarantee that all the newspapers will be here because they'll want to see me sitting on the front row. Yeah. And they agreed to it. Yeah. Think that was, Did yeah. You? So that was Ella Fitzgerald says that Marilyn Monroe was sort of responsible for her breaking through. And that was a mixture of things. It was it was her look. It was also, you know, the fact she was black, the whole segregation thing. They didn't want black performers headlining these big Las Vegas showcases. And Marilyn was the person who said, well, yeah, exactly. I'll sit in the front row. And then as soon as her voice got heard, Frank Sinatra was coming to the shows and Judy Garland was coming to the shows. And suddenly it was, hang on who's this woman that is pulling this A-list crowd to come and see her? And yeah, Ella, Ella always said it was Marilyn Monroe. She's a was... bit like Susan Boyle, wouldn't you say? She's... Is that not that's... fair? Because like that's what um... that was the point of Susan Boyle when she was first on the talent show, wasn't it? That she didn't look mm. like a singer, but then yeah. she had an amazing voice. Yeah. I saw yeah. Susan Boyle once. Gee. In Edinburgh. She, was just, she just walked past me. Oh, yeah. Or I walked past her. But... Uh, Memories may vary of the event. Well, we definitely walked past each other. Well, one that... of you was standing still then in that case, right? So No, we were both moving. I, I've mistold even this incredibly short story. <laughs> you walked past each other. We walked past each other, yeah. And, um, I don't was... think memories vary of the event, Andy, because I'm fairly sure there's only one person who has a memory of the event. <laughs> <laughs> She's always mentioning it in interviews, Anna. How dare you? She's constantly saying... Um, one of her big inspirations when she was a child was a man called Earl Snake Hips Tucker. <laughs> This was when it's a really sleazy laugh, James. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about um, snakes and whether they have hips or not. <laughs> Great point. And I yeah. think they might have very, very small residual hips, 
And I think mm -hmm. some snakes, you can see they have tiny little um, leg bones that come off them. So did this man have an extremely small residual legs? Or... Yeah, yeah, he was named after the tiny hips of snakes. <laughs> no, he, he wasn't. Well, why um, did they give him that name then? I think yeah. he... Okay, well, I'll, I can tell you he was also known as the human boa constrictor. Oh, so he helps. killed people oh. by wrapping his legs around their neck. <laughs> Okay, you're you're really applying too much biological knowledge to wow. what well, was a bit more of a casual nickname. So was he was a dancer. Was called boa constrictor because his uh, Latin name was the same as his <laughs> common name. Right. I, I think it sounds like he was hung like an ancient Egyptian baboon of the afterworld. <laughs> okay, you've all got your very quintessentially you interpretations of the reason for this name. None of them are correct, okay? He did a dance where you wiggle your hips around and your body looks like a snake. And it's where you sort of like you're standing with your feet together and then you move one knee forward and back after the other and it makes your hips rotate. I was looking up some more of the great singers of the 20th century, okay. um, just out of curiosity. And did you know that in 1978, Dame Barbara Cartland released an album of love songs? She? Yeah. Oh, wow. Backed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Wow. It was her singing and there's a spoken word intro to everyone. Was she a good singer? She wasn't great. I haven't listened oh. to all the whole thing, uh, but the little bit I've heard to does it like Ella, Ella Fitzgerald didn't need to worry about her crown being taken away by Dame Barb's. Um, I found one review on a, a quite obscure website, but a great review. It said, with such a lushly orchestrated backing, her limited vocal abilities stick out like a bookmark in a well-thumbed novel. <laughs> her feeble efforts to stay in a key entirely unsuitable for her result in a curious strained whimper, not unlike the howl of her trademark lapdog when it's past dinner time. Well, it's weird that that's where your search for greatest female singers of the 20th century is. <laughs> well, I searched for Barbara Cartland News a lot, so that's probably why Google knows me better. So she gave her last concert in 1991. So this We're back is on Ella, Ella now, right? Yeah. Sorry, Ella. back onto Ella. Yeah, I'll I'll save my Barbara Cartland material for another episode. Um, so Ella Fitzgerald gave her last concert in 1991, and she had a bit of a sad ending. She was sort of very ill near the end of her days. But I do love in all the stories that you hear about her, she was relentless with wanting to sort of carry on singing. Her voice was even getting worse and worse as she got older, but she still just wanted to be on stage. And and at one point, I think it was through diabetes, she had to have her legs amputated below the knees. And when she had her first leg amputated, her friends thought, God, that's probably it. And a friend said to her, you know, okay, you know, I guess we're pausing now. And her response was, what? There's nothing wrong with my throat. I'm not singing with my leg. I love that. And she was back on the stage just doing her thing. Oh. And yeah, yeah, just a, an astonishingly determined character who who uh, yeah. earned the role of second best singer just behind Barbara. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She married someone called Cigarette. Really? She, well, she married someone whose nickname was Cigarette. Oh. And he was called Benny Cornegay, and she married him in 1941. Uh, it was quite short-lived because her managers and bandmates thought he was a nasty piece of work, and so they hired private investigators to look into him. And indeed, he did have a criminal past, and so they told her to divorce him or annul the marriage. But one of the bandmates did remember they all called him Cigarette, and he didn't know why. He said he wasn't tall or thin or anything. We just all called him Cigarette. He always wore a hat that was on fire, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that as part of their rivalry, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger tricked Sylvester Stallone into making Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Stallone later described the movie as one of the worst films in the entire solar system. <laughs> oh. I cannot believe we are talking about Stop or My Mom Will what? Shoot. What? I, Final- I, I mean, no. finally. I've been dying for this. <laughs> well... This is a fact was sent to me by MK Chris on Twitter uh, after we mentioned Stop On My Mom Will Shoot a couple of times over the last year or so. <laughs> it was my favourite film, which I've never actually seen. And it's just like a go-to joke film. And then yesterday I actually watched it. I watched the film yesterday. Did you? Yeah. James, and how was it? I thought it wasn't that bad, actually. I mean, <laughs> it was kind of fine. It was kind of, I did laugh a couple of times. There's some weird bits where some kind of funny thing happens and they have this kind of music in the background going, it's so yes. strange. It's I watched so it weird. yesterday too. And no. that's one of the main features. The best yeah. bit is where Sylvester Stallone actually says the name of the title. He says, stop yes. or my mum will shoot, which is like, <laughs> I imagine if I was in the theatre in the 80s or whenever it came out, I would have done a big cheer on the 90s. <laughs> uh, and then the weirdest thing about it, I thought, was the very, very last joke, which kind of wraps the whole thing up, is uh, Estelle Getty saying, oh, this guy, he shot his mother. <laughs> that's the big joke huh? at the end of the whole thing and then Stallone makes a face of like oh well I can kind oh. of see why he did because my mum's so annoying I can't Uh-oh. believe James you've just Anna Karenin and stop on my mum will shoot I think if you, it's, a, it's a piece of classic work and if you haven't seen it by now you probably never will see it <laughs> only got yourself to blame People would have invested 84 minutes of their life into this film, and for you to just spoil it like that. <laughs> You're saying that assuming they watch the film. If they read the novel, it'll be even longer. <laughs> it's but, so short. It's shall, just so short. Shall I quickly... That's got to be a redeeming feature. I mean, they must have known when they made it, right, we've made a piece of shit here, but shall we at least uh, make it too long? I think it's not that. The first few minutes, I genuinely laughed a few times, but... Can I just quickly say what it is first, like for people? About the know. fact itself. The yeah, thing. I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone had this big rivalry because uh, they were two main sort of strong men of Hollywood. Uh, and we might get to a few of the things that happened between them. Um, but Schwarzenegger apparently leaked out that he was really interested in doing this movie because he wanted Sylvester Stallone to do it instead. And so he said, oh, I'm really interested. He said in the press, yeah, I'm really interested. Um, I'm up for this. I'm up for this. And then he told the studio that he wanted loads and loads and loads of money. So the studio then went to Sylvester Stallone and said, Arnold Schwarzenegger is really interested in this. Would you be interested in maybe undercutting him? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd love to stick it to him. Uh, And then he made this thing and he said that it's one of the worst films in the entire solar system, including alien productions we've never seen. He said, a flatworm (laughs) could write a better script. Uh, And he said, in some countries, China, I believe, running the movie once a week on government television has lowered the birth rate to zero. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's incredible! Amazing lines. He shouldn't yeah. have taken it. He's only got himself to blame. If he knew it was a terrible script, then you know yeah. that's, that's where petty rivalry gets you. You it's- never know, though, right? You never know what's going to hit. It was that period of film where these things will either just be massive or mm. 
I think a decent edit could have could have worked wonders with it. I think the you know the Zack Snyder cut of Stop My Mum Will Shoot might really add sort of tension and drama and comedy. Yeah. Um, but there are so there are so many interesting things in it. So there's um, if you want to see Sylvester Stallone wearing a nappy, that, that yes, features that in the film yeah. halfway right. in. But the the best thing for me is James. You'll remember this scene. Uh, it's where his mum is trying to buy him the gun, yes, and she ends up accidentally buying him uh, an Uzi, basically. Anyway. The gun store clerk is played by Richard Schiff. And if anyone listening is a fan of The West Wing, Richard Schiff played Toby Ziegler, um, an incredibly prestigious role. It may be one of the most prestigious TV shows ever made. This was just a few years after he'd done Stop My Mum Will Shoot. But he brings such you know, gravitas to the role of unnamed gun store clerk after about 20 minutes of the movie that I don't think the film ever really recovers from his brilliant, quiet, five-line turn as wow. in this role. It's like, he, oh, wow, he was so good as the gun store clerk that the rest of the film's kind of a bit of a disappointment right? Wow. for me. Does, does he have the what? same sort of long-suffering, slightly misanthropic, but right? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Mm. I really think it might be the same character, but, you know, in between, there was some event which turned him into the oh, press. Do you, oh. you think they live in the same universe then? 100% is the same <laughs> cinematic universe. <laughs> wow, that's exciting. <laughs> also, there's uh, there's a moment where Estelle Getty is sitting on the plane and she holds up a black and white picture of Sy- Sylvester Stallone as a young boy. And that exact same picture is used in Rocky. So okay. there oh, could be yeah. a suggestion that they're twins who are leading these different <laughs> lives. Well, that makes sense, because one of the motivations for Sylvester Stallone taking this film was that he'd seen, apparently, this is what he said in an interview, that Arnold Schwarzenegger was branching out with, for instance, films like Kindergarten Cop and Twins. Mm. And so he felt that he should branch out in the same way. So maybe the Mm. twin thing was his way of emulating that. Right. Yeah. Another one of the terrible movies he did was starring alongside podcast favourite Dolly Parton, of course, Rhinestone. Which he was uh, when he was, was this. Sorry, Anna. Uh, Sylvester Stallone. Sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, so he was in Rhinestone, and when he did an interview where members of the public asked him questions, they said, "Are there any films you wish you hadn't done?" And he sort of immediately had a very long list. Um, <laughs> top, of course, was Stop My Mum Will Shoot. Uh, Get Carter. He did a remake of that. Bad idea. Oh, Oscar. Yeah. Driven. Detox. And then he said Rhinestone, which I wish had been romancing the stone. Which I thought a strange thing to say, but actually he was offered that same year Romancing the Stone, he? which he turned down in favour of the lesser Stone film release, Rhinestone. And Romancing the Stone was. <laughs> do you think he was? Do you think he was stereotyped as doing after he did Rocky? Do you think we just have to put him in stone-based movies so. from now on? Yeah, yeah. and he's Sylvester Stallone, so yeah, it's kind of persuasive. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Um, someone else who worked on the film Stop My Mum Will Shoot was the person who coordinated the action sequences. Now, I haven't seen the film, guys, so is, are they quite... Oh, they're pretty amazing. Please, yeah. any questions? They, uh, Yeah, they're pretty... Yeah. They come thick and fast. Great, okay, so we had a lot to do. Um, yeah. So he was a guy called Evan Lurie, and he starred, Evan Lurie, or Lurie, starred in a film called American Kickboxer 2. And <laughs> oh, great movie. <laughs> have you actually seen that? Of course, Dan, yeah. Seen it. Well, wait. So, Dan, have you seen the prequel to American Kickboxer Two? Yeah, it wouldn't make sense if I hopped <laughs> straight into American the prequel Kickboxer to two. American Kickboxer Two. Anna, just say American Kickboxer. <laughs> Incorrect. I'm not going to say that because it's not <laughs> true. Tricked. You've, you've fallen right into my trap. Right. American Kickboxer <laughs> One was released in 1991. 
American Kickboxer 2 was released in 1993. 2 had nothing to do with 1, although 1 <laughs> did have a sequel, but that sequel was called To the Death. What? And then a totally different studio released a totally unrelated film called American Kickboxer 2. That's weird. So wait a minute. Wow. So American Kickboxer 2 didn't have a prequel. It just went straight in as American No. Sorry. So it was a trick question. You you should have said, no, obviously not, Anna, because it didn't have a prequel. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Estelle Getty, who plays the um, the other role in Stop on My Mum Will Shoot alongside Sylvester Stallone. Um, she has played not just the mother of Sylvester Stallone, but also the mother of Cher and the mother of Barry Manilow in various oh. films. And she basically says that she always gets typecast as a mother in any single thing because that she was a mother in Golden Girls. So she yeah. was a mother in the Golden Girls. Um, and actually, I think she might have been younger than some of the people she was supposed to be the mother of. <laughs> she was, yeah. But she like had this kind of character as just being this typical kind of Jewish, overbearing mother. Um, which she then took into almost every play. She says, she, I played mothers in plays by Neil Simon, Arthur Miller, and Tennessee Williams, mother to everybody but Attila the Hun. Wow. wow. Right. Yeah. Do you think she was angling for the Attila the Hun role? Mrs. Hun. <laughs> <laughs> I want to complete the set. Stop on my Hunnel shoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read Estelle Getty's um, book that she wrote when I was about 14 years old because I heard that she was a comedy actor in, in a big sitcom like uh, Golden Girls. So I assumed that she was like one of the hot comedians of America. And this was a time when I was younger where I thought, I just want to read everything. So I read this whole book and it really was bizarre. And I was just kind of like, well, I guess it'll get good. And it never quite did. Um, but I think I'm one of the few people in their 30s who can say they've read Estelle Getty's book. <laughs> I, I think that's a real only... rare sentence. <laughs> That's the thing is, Andy and James, you do mad things like watching Stop on My Mum Will Shoot for the sake of research. Mm. Dan actually just chooses to do this stuff for fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a biography was Very called odd. If I Know Then What I Know Now. And it came out, I think, after she'd won her Golden Globe, maybe, or, or an Emmy or something like that. Uh, and she said, After 50 years in the business, I'm an overnight success. Mm. Yes. Yeah, right, she, she got her first named role when she was over 60. Yeah, but her, she, first role, yeah, yeah. her first role where she was credited in a film and then she goes on to win Grammys and Emmys. So there's hope wow. for us. She's very good That's in this film, I must say. She was yeah, She's o- one of the overlooked shining... by the Academy. Yeah. <laughs> As the entire film was. <laughs> <laughs> so should we mention this huge rivalry that happened between Stallone and Schwarzenegger? Yeah. yeah. Um, the first moment where it properly became a thing was at the Golden Globes. And Sylvester Stallone was nominated for a number of awards for Rocky. And they were sat very near each other, I believe on opposite ends of a table. And Rocky just kept losing the awards yeah. through the night. And every time they lost an award, Stallone would catch um, Schwarzenegger's eye and Schwarzenegger would be pulling a sort of smug, ah-ha-ha ha, kind of face. <laughs> oh, like, you shouldn't win it anyway. And it got to the point where Stallone was so intimidated by this that he picked up a giant bowl of flowers, <laughs> a big vase, and he chucked it at Schwarzenegger. And he said they had tulips and lilies and everything that went everywhere. <laughs> and and, um, and that was the start of it. That was the moment that instigated what was a decade-long rivalry between the two of them, where they took every opportunity to get one up on each other. Of all the you know, things you want to throw to show off your testosterone and masculinity. A vase of tulips strikes mm. me as not the first choice. 
No. Especially as later down the road, what they would deliberately have movies that would have a bigger gun than the previous guy's movie. Oh, I love that idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, Schwarzenegger would be in a film with a kind of a 12-inch gun and then Stallone would come in with a 15-inch gun and they get bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> until they had to mount all the guns on the helicopters and tanks so that they'd be able to... <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was the thing. I think one of them was saying in an interview, and this really resonated with me because I always wondered, oh, I've never seen something like that. Rambo. So if Schwarzenegger had a movie with a sword, he would make sure it was a massive sword. And in Rambo, Rambo's knife is ginormous. It's just way bigger than any kind mm -hmm. of knife you would ever have. And supposedly <laughs> that was um, made specifically at the request of Sylvester Stallone because he was like, well, I need the biggest knife. I need to be bigger than uh, Schwarzenegger. And <laughs> And if you see it, it's a memory from childhood. I'm always like, that's a ridiculously novelty-sized knife. <laughs> that's so big. And it turns out it's the rivalry that led to oh, it. you know why? Yeah. You know Rambo is named after an apple? <laughs> really? Yeah. What? Could be that the knife was just for cutting the apple. It was named after Rambo apples, which are apples in America, which in turn are named after a guy called Peter Gunnarsson Rambo, who founded New Sweden, a colony in America in 1637. Uh. This guy, uh, Peter Gunnarsson Rambo, was named after Rambaget, which is where he was from, which means Raven Mountain in Gothenburg. And Rambo's code name in Rambo is Raven Wow. That was oh a fact God. sent in by a listener who has too much time on their hands and spotted it. This so whole thing you. has been blown wide open. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it, what, Stop and My Mama Shoots is in the same world as what was the thing, Andy? Uh, the West Wing. West Wing. Oh, this is all going <laughs> crazy. The other thing I thought, which is kind of weird, is you know how we were saying that if one of them had a gun which was a certain size, the other one had to go one bigger? Well, in um, Twins... Um, Schwarzenegger worked with Danny DeVito, who was 1.47 meters tall. Um, whereas in Stop and My Mum Will Shoot, um, Stallone worked with Estelle Getty, who was 1.49 meters tall. <gasps> so he had to just go two centimeters taller in his supporting actor, didn't yeah. he? I think that's what that was. That's so uh, funny. That's uh, a really good point. Because that's <laughs> a lot of the comedy comes from the fact that Estelle Getty just looks so tiny next to Stallone. Yeah. And it is hilarious when they, um, when they keep showing them next to each hilarious. other. Hilarious. Mm, it stays hilarious so, yeah. all the way through throughout the 84 minutes of screen time <laughs> he's yeah. a really fast writer Stallone that's the other thing so he claimed to have written the first Rocky film in three days only, yes. he wrote it and starred in it um, he wrote Rocky 2 in 29 hours according to him and then later on he claimed he wrote the cop thriller Cobra in 16 hours that's yeah which can't wow. can't really have, fast um, yeah. that's amazing wasn't it the thing with Rocky 1 the first one that he wrote it and he took it to a studio and they said, yeah, we'll buy it off you for the equivalent of like a million quid or something. Uh, but we don't want you to be in it. We want Burt Reynolds or someone to be in it. I don't know who they said. Mm. And But he said, no, I need to be in it. Otherwise, you're not having it. And so he wouldn't take the money. And at that time, he had like no money in the bank. He had like $100 in the bank or something. But So that's the story. But mm. later on, it turned out that that was a bit of a PR thing to make him seem like this big underdog. Really? And actually... The studio had always accepted he was going to be in it. They spent six months helping him to get the script of the film into shape. And like they were on board for the... But it was such a compelling story. That's such a nice idea that Wait he stuck minute. to his guns and said, I don't have any money, but I have to be in this. But it doesn't work because why would they have to put so much time and effort into fixing a script that he'd already spent 16 hours writing? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? He later, he later made an arm wrestling um, version oh, of yeah. Rocky. 
called Over the Top, was it? Yes, of course, Dan. I've seen it. <laughs> it's the, so that's a description of the movie, but what was it called? <laughs> the, the and he doesn't know it in the course of his research. This is the amazing thing. He didn't I need know. to research this fact at all. Over the Top. The one-liner on IMDb, I'll say it just to save Dan's breath, but... <laughs> Tough trucker Lincoln Hawk, he plays Lincoln Hawk, is determined to win back his son and triumph at the World Arm Wrestling Championships. Wow. <laughs> the reason I know that movie so well is I used to work for the BBC for the quiz department developing shows, and we'd managed to get to the boss of BBC. We're in the room with the top dog of BBC pitching the show, and he wasn't buying it, and we needed a moment to sell it, like something big. And the guy who was on our team, who we really hoped would not speak during the meeting, decided to speak, and he said, can I tell you, Peter, Peter, it's like the last scene in Over the Top when you don't <laughs> think, and all of us just went, I cannot believe you are referencing the most obscure Sylvester Stallone movie ever made. I want to In our meet... golden moment. We needed the hero moment. And you came up with that. And I want to meet the person who can be sat in a room with you. And <laughs> he is the one who's making these obscure references to shit movies. <laughs> yeah, stop referring to yourself in the third person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I shut him up. I was like, sorry, Peter, Peter. What he meant was, you know the end scene of American Kickboxer 2? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we have uh, enough guys so yeah whatever yeah okay cool i've just got one last tiny thing yeah, yeah. this yeah. is an interview bob hoskins did with the guardian in 2011 they asked him three questions here we go what is the worst job you've done he said super mario brothers <laughs> they then said what has been your biggest disappointment super mario brothers <laughs> If you could edit your past, what would you change? He said, I wouldn't do Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> oh, Dan, you must have seen that. Is it any good? Brilliant film. Brilliant film. What did Absolute he play? Classic. Like, did he play like he's... a mushroom or something? No, he's Mario. He's oh, uh, he? Yeah, yeah. He's a plumber in New York, I think, and they get taken down. It's quite dark. It's really sort of like Ninja Turtles style movie. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that famously dark <laughs> film, Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Wow, wait till we show you Schindler's less done. <laughs> okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Check them out. Also, you can head to our YouTube channel, the quite interesting channel, where you'll find extracts from the 20 hour marathon that we just did for comic relief a few weeks ago. Most of it should be up there by now. We'll be drip feeding them over the next few weeks as well, three a day. Do check them out and please donate to the cause if you do have any money. Go to comicrelief.com slash fish. We'd really appreciate it. All right, guys, we will be back again next week with another episode. We will see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>